In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my cube. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Michael Bloom. And I'm Jess Seelove. Yeah, the, the, this week we have Jess back on the podcast. Jess Seelove is Nathan's wife, but more importantly, she's a very talented thinker on the topics that we talk about on the Perspectrum. And so we love having her on and happy to have her here this week. Uh, Nathan is not with us. May he rest in peace. I mean, he's probably napping or something. No, he's, he's <laughs> definitely playing Witcher. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> and um, yeah, so we have a a great episode lined up today. We're going to talk a little bit about COVID, do some updates there. Then we're going to talk about um, some recent Supreme Court decisions. So in addition to the um, decision on LGBTQ rights that Nathan and Jess covered last week, we'll talk about um, a couple more breaking news decisions as well. And then we'll end talking about some more um, problems with our police force, both structural and tactical. Wait, there's so many problems. <laughs> it's like we wouldn't even have a podcast without all these problems. <laughs> Could you imagine the perspective where we just talked about good things? That'd be like that one episode I did by myself back in December. <laughs> <laughs> you were like, I'm tired of the sad things. Yeah, but um, that's what keeps us in business here at the Perspectrum. Mm-hmm. So speaking of sad things, Let's uh, start out um, reviewing some of the COVID numbers. Yeah, let's. Yeah. So currently, uh, worldwide, we've had a total of 3.9 million cases with 478,000 deaths. Um, But on the bright side, more than half of the total cases have recovered. So over 500,000 cases have recovered. Hmm. Not so much on the bright side. In the U.S., we have 2.4 million cases and 123,000 deaths, and only 1 million of those cases have recovered, so less than half. And so the reason I'm calling that out is because as a disease spreads, the cumulative total cases obviously goes up, but also the cumulative recoveries goes up. But what that can indicate is the rate of spread. So as the disease spreads more slowly, the increase in total cases goes up at a slower rate than the increase in total recoveries. So what you'll see is that you'll start to shift from an increase in cases to to your increase in recoveries. Eventually you'll get to 100% recovered as your cases go to zero. But in, in, so in the world, we're kind of seeing that trend where we have over half of the current, you know, of the total cases that have occurred recovered. But in the U.S., we are not nearly at that place yet. We're still seeing um, like a higher growth in, co- in cases than we see in recoveries. Um, so just like, yeah, an indication that things are not necessarily where we want them yet. Yes. And uh, Trump was right about something. I I hate to break it to the audience, but he was right in that the more uh, testing, the more um, access to testing we have, the more cases we will discover. Yes. Yeah. He was (laughs) very right about that. um, But I, I think I need to fill in the blanks for some of the conservative folk who are confused about this. Mm. 
just because there are more cases discovered doesn't mean that we're causing the cases with testing. <laughs> you want yeah. to discover the cases so you can track <laughs> them down, quarantine the folks who are exposing others, treat the people who need it, get resources to that area. That's the whole point. So we go back to the basic element that causation is not correlation. Yes. Yeah. No kidding. <laughs> and to your, and I think actually Jess, you're giving him a little bit too much credit because what he was saying was the more tests, the more cases by you inserting the word, the more cases we discover, it qualifies that <laughs> and makes it an accurate statement as opposed to a misleading one. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I probably was being too nice to him. He had a hard yeah. week though. Yeah. You're right. You're right. He, he needs, he needs our support. I mean, the rest of us, are, we're just walking on sunshine compared to him though. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you can only eat so many Cheetos and Diet Coke before you start feeling bad. Um, so what Jess, what Jess, what Jess was referencing was that in a rally over the weekend, um, and, and let's be clear on this, an in-person rally, you know, with like tons of people indoors, confined spaces during a pandemic, he said that testing is, quote, a double-edged sword. And that he, he told, he said, um, I said to my people, slow down the testing, please. Um, <laughs> he heard <laughs> slow the spread and got confused. Yeah. <laughs> slow the knowledge. But <laughs> all the knowledge in his brain is slow. So he's just trying to catch up. But yeah, it's funny. Like the senior members of his administration came out and were like, guys, no, no. He was just kidding. And of course, as always, he comes out in a press conference and says, I don't kid. Let me just tell you. Let me make it clear. By having more tests, we have more cases. <laughs> he doesn't have to kid. He is a joke. Yeah. And, and so, you know, we've seen all of these deaths. And, and as, of, as of now, um, four months into this thing really getting going in the U.S., it has racked up enough enough deaths to overcome Alzheimer's as a cause of death in the U S. And so that means that if death stopped right now, it would be the sixth leading cause of, of death in the United States in just four yeah. months. I don't think death is going to stop. Um, yeah. yeah. Which is something that, as you've said many times on the podcast, the total number of deaths per year in the U S is not going to go away. And some mm -hmm. people did argue that, you know, fewer people going out and about means less death from things like car accidents. But that's going to be changing too. I've seen many mm -hmm. more cars on the road. I mean, you can observe this yourself. Um, there's a lot more traffic. So there's a lot more risk for death <laughs> from yeah. cars. Yeah, and that, that's a great segue. Like, we are seeing a lot more people feeling or or seeming to behave like they feel like things are going back to normal just it's it's not normal um as the great fouch says <laughs> yeah yeah exactly yeah so fauci in an interview um in the past couple of days kind of described this trend um and basically his takeaway was like as localities are opening up and you're kind of giving people an inch they're taking a mile like people feel like they're either totally locked down or 
life is totally back to normal. Um, and what he, what he emphasized is that we are not in the second wave. Like we see declining cases in certain areas, but the U S is extremely heterogeneous and very, very big. And so just over the past few days, we've seen huge upsurges in cases in various parts of the U S. So, um, California broke its record in single-day new cases on Sunday with 4,515 new cases. And then the next day, it broke it again with an additional 5,000 new cases. In, in Utah and Arizona and New Mexico, we've seen 40% increase uh, over the first week in June. And in Florida, Arkansas, North Carolina, and South Carolina, we saw a 30% increase week over week. And at the same time, we're also seeing a, a surge in coronavirus hospitalization. So it's not just like, you know, it's not, it, it's the same trend we've seen over and over again, that the more people get this disease, the more people go into the hospital. The sh we, it leads to a shortage of ICU beds. Like, it's like we've never been through this before. <laughs> and we really weren't prepared for it again. Um. I think, yeah, I think it, it goes back to that misunderstanding of what slow the spread means. I think mm. a lot of people um, either fell into the category that, well, we're all going to get it, which is probably somewhat true. I mean, likely the majority of us will get it. That is a fact. And a lot of people took that to mean, if I get it now, if I get it in six months, if I get it in a year, it's all the same. May as well get it out of the way without mm -hmm. considering, again, we have limited resources. We have a limited number of medical staff available. We have yeah. limited beds, all of these things. Like you said, the ICU um, space is limited. So mm -hmm. slowing the spread did not mean we're just going to really, really slow it down to a trickle and then wait until yeah. about three months later and just turn it on full blast. Yeah, and then bust it open and have a second huge, huge peak. And, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these cases are coming from places that were comparatively low hit um, when we were first seeing this thing hit the U.S. Notice I didn't mention New Jersey and New York City. Those, those areas are having, you know, declines in cases. But, you know, as people are going out more, as people are taking fewer precautions, um, we're seeing it spread more. And, you know, the strain on our hospital system is tangible. So Texas has seen record level of hospitalizations for three days in a row in this past week. And North Carolina, 87% of the ICU beds are currently filled. There's just, we're operating very quickly. Like in the blink of an eye, it went from things are kind of getting better to our health system is at capacity again. Yeah, it, it really does feel... I think, I mean, I've not experienced this same level, um, but it, it's, it reminds me of, you know, the way that people talk about like, the great wars, like World War Two <laughs> and World War One, where they would say, you know, as a culture, you just had to keep reminding people it's eventually going to end and you just have to keep doing these things. You have to keep rationing um, your mm -hmm. food, even though you're tired of it. You have to keep working um and doing things in a weird way, even though you're tired of it, because there's no other option. And um, I 
think this is the first time maybe in a really long time that we've ever experienced this sort of unified um, event that's affecting everyone at this level. Yeah. 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 To your point, it is hard to keep people focused for this long on something that is un feels unnatural and is uncomfortable. And I think like th that was a, I don't know if I called it out on the podcast, but that was one of the dangers that I was thinking about as we were moving into phase one early on was like, all right, you gave people a rule, stay indoors and people did it sometimes, but they did it enough. And then you loosen that rule and all of a sudden it's kind of a gray area, whether you can just go outside whenever you want or like go to the grocery store whenever you want, mm -hmm. or maybe a little bit of a gray area, whether you should be wearing a mask when you're in the park and you know, the wheels come off. Yeah. It's one of those instances where I really wish we had, um, a, a focused group of educating people about the spread of disease. Cause I don't mm. think we've had enough like public education initiatives about how diseases are spread. Um, you see this with flu on a smaller scale where people, you know, a lot of people will say, I don't get the flu vaccine either because they say, I don't, I don't want to get the flu. And that's just a <laughs> lack of understanding how vaccines work in the immune system. And if you can sit down and explain it to them, a lot of people would say, okay, now that makes sense. Um, mm. You know, but another thing to discuss is, spreading of a disease or at least exposing people to it happens on such a, such a scale that we can't always comprehend it. It's yeah. like a billion dollars. It's intangible. Yeah. And I think people might've thought, well, if I'm okay to go back to work while I wear a mask, or if I'm okay to go to a restaurant, if I sit six feet away from someone else outside, yeah. then it must be okay for me to go and see my family. And then maybe I'll go to the grocery store and then maybe I'll go to the park and then maybe I'll yeah. do this. And every single person you're encountering, they could be exposing you. You could be exposing them. You're all just spreading it potentially. <laughs> yeah. You know, totally. Like, like I think that is a great point. Um, we are not good at conceptualizing things that are very, very big and things that are very, very small. And I've seen it, I don't know if you've noticed this just anecdotally, but I've noticed that among my social circles, people often use, it's not really an excuse, it's more like a justification. Like, well, I don't really know anybody that's gotten this, or I only know one person that's gotten this, or I, I only know one person that's died from this. And it's like, well, one, isn't that terrible? And two, like, that's success. <laughs> you know, like, it's not a great success, but like, not no, like not seeing the impact of this in your everyday life is the goal. Yes, and also people thinking that it will look the same in everyone. Um, it's important to understand that this may, you know, you or I could contract COVID, and you might have a completely different experience than I do. I might have to be hospitalized. Maybe I have pre-existing conditions that put me at a certain risk. Um, maybe there are other contributing factors. You might just be sick for a week. Um, mm -hmm. And then you'll be still kind of contagious for another week and be a little maybe weak or whatever. But then you'll go about your life. So, yeah, I mean, the that 
when we talk about the um, incubation period for a disease, it's important to understand who sneezed and when. <laughs> I mean, if you want to <laughs> put it simply, like if, if, if we could tell immediately when someone was contagious with a disease, society would never have encountered plagues because mm -hmm. we would have known. I mean, we already know quarantine the sick people, but by then it's often too late. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And to your point, um, kind of the point you mentioned earlier, like viruses work by taking advantage of the networks in like nature and the world and society. You know, like if, if, if one person contracted a virus in a cave in isolation, the virus would die along with that person. And like, it would literally be the least successful virus in history. Um, but the whole, the virus is spread obviously by networks. And, you know, it makes me think of like the old, um, like six degrees to Kevin Bacon thing, um, or like to whomever you wish. Basically it's the idea that via some, um, some single path through your personal network, you can get, you can draw a connection to anyone else on the planet. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty powerful. Like, so, so if I were to meet, if I were to get together with everyone I know and I have COVID, it would only like, there's only six degrees of separation between everyone I know and literally everyone else on the earth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We're so interconnected. Um, we don't live in tiny little hamlets where it's four days journey to the next town over, mm -hmm. um, which might prevent some spread, you know, back in the day. If you if you live four days away from going anywhere, you might realize you're sick on the way there and you might not make it. Just sad and terrible. Mm -hmm. But now, you know, like you were saying, you can have a party with your family and then if, you know, your aunt stops at the grocery store on the way home, she's possibly exposing people. Those people yeah. are possibly exposing others. Mm -hmm. Totally. I think that's totally right. And to your point earlier as well, we know that not everyone experiences this disease in the same way. You know, we have asymptomatic people that get it and never experience any adverse symptoms. We have, you know, people that get it and they've got the sniffles. Other people describe it as the worst sickness they've ever had, but they recover and many people die. Right. And we also have people who maybe would have recovered easier if they could stay home and not go to work. Um, people who have to go to work and therefore are putting their bodies at higher stress. People who don't have insurance. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, exactly. And when you, when you list those reasons, they disproportionately describe specific subsegments of the U.S. population. Uh, and that is our minorities, specifically black people in the United States. So, so when people are advocating for opening up, when people are saying, man, I'm just tired of taking these precautions, you know, the risk is not that high for me. We're not just talking about exposing older people. We are disproportionately putting the risk of our choices on our black communities. And to put a few numbers to this, the, the CDC recently came out with a report that studied um, 580 patients hospitalized with lab-confirmed COVID-19 cases and found that 45% of these individuals were white 
compared to 59% of the individuals in the surrounding community. So a much smaller incidence of hospitalizations for white people than existed in the surrounding community. But then they looked at the black population and found that 33% of the hospitalizations were black compared to 18% in the surrounding community. Um, and so this, this data obviously repre- or obviously shows that an overrepresentation of black people among hospitalized patients. And when you look specifically at deaths, um, if you look at COVID deaths in, in New York City, for black people, there were 92.3 COVID deaths per 100,000 black people in the population. Um, and for white people, there were 45.2 per 100,000 people in the population. So that means that you are twice as likely to die uh, from COVID in New York City if you are black than if you are white, which is is staggering. Yeah, Michael, that's a really good thing to always keep in mind um for a lot of medical conditions you are at a higher rate than white people for death if you're a black person and it's not just a coincidence i mean we can't just look at that and say all other things happening across socioeconomic levels across regional levels why or are for instance black mothers more likely to die in childbirth um, or with Mm. complications relating to birth than white mothers. We have to understand culturally where that might be um, having its roots. And the medical community has a lot of racist roots that it would be negligent to not talk about. Mm. No, that's totally true. So I am not an expert in medical history, but if you look at medical history there is a um a really horrifying past of an idea that is a hallmark of cultures white cultures that have enslaved black people and the idea starts with black people don't feel pain the way we do because they are not like us that's the basic idea that if you want to know why a lot of people at the time who seemed like otherwise good people didn't have a problem with slavery or some of the practices against um, black people, it really comes from this idea of white people telling themselves that it's okay whatever we do to black people because Mm. they don't really feel pain. Because if they did, we'd be monsters, but we're not. (laughs) And... uh, Smarter people than little, me. Have little gone. circular logic there. <laughs> uh, much smarter and more informed people than I have gone into this and learned about it. But if you look at medical history, you can hear stories about how frequently black people were, say, experimented on. Um, mm-hmm. The what? Who's considered the father of gynecology? actually experimented on black women without anesthesia he really said you know black women don't feel pain like that yeah and so despite despite them having to be held down by his compatriots in order to you know undergo these incredibly painful procedures exactly um and if you go further in in history there's such a high um degree of 
the medical community, which was at the time run by primarily white, um, primarily men, really uh, using their their paternalistic um, position of authority to tell people that basically you're not feeling what you're feeling, you're not seeing what you're seeing, this isn't a real thing. So anytime you look at this disparity in a medical condition, it's important to understand there are roots that go all the way back through our country's history and mm -hmm. you can't divorce medical care from your cultural values. That's impossible to do. Um, yeah. And another thing to consider is that there is now a documented, um, like there's now documented research showing that there is an actual physical strain of experiencing trauma and microaggressions throughout your life. So black people are also facing physical responses to the systemic racism that they experience throughout their life. Hmm. That can lead to pre-existing conditions that might make COVID very dangerous. So again, you know, when you're seeing these discrepancies, the data is trying to tell you something. It's not just a happy little coincidence and we don't know why. And gosh, that's really sad, but there's nothing we can do about it. There are things that we can do about it, but they're difficult. They're going to take a lot of time and research mm -hmm. and consistently battling against everything you've learned in your entire history. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's super important to recognize that like the justifications for slavery, as, as you were talking about, Jess, go are like deeply connected to the history of the scientific community. Um, so we don't have to dig too deep and in, deeply into it now, but like the scientific community specifically categorized black people as another kind of like another kind of human that was less, that was not as prone to pain. Um, and, and, you know, you look at the study of phrenology, which is now recognized as a pseudoscience, but at the time was, you know, taken very seriously, showing that, um, you know, attempting to show that there were physiological features in the brains of African Americans that um, made them predisposed to certain traits which uh, gave the, the white person the right to be there to lord over them. Um, and, and so like the idea that, that racism and, um, science are unconnected is to ignore the history of racism. And we see it not just in our history, but also today, you know, you, you see, if you talk to medical students, there's still the misconception that, that black people have thick, literally thicker skin, um, than white people. And, uh, it's, it's. Black people are less likely to be taken seriously in their requests for pain medication than white people. Um, not only because we think that they um, feel pain less, but also because it's more common that they're presumed that they're just asking for it to get a fix. Yeah, I know when I was in nursing school, I had an instructor that was trying to explain that um, physiologically, you know, we have genetic predispositions. Uh, you might see that kind of a lot of a lot of people who are Asian are lactose intolerant. That's obviously not true for every one of them. It just happens to be that um, genetically, there's something that's predisposing you to that. 
So you can also see, or I was told in nursing school that you needed to really evaluate your preconceptions about pain management with patients. Um, some people can feel pain even after they've been given pain medication because maybe they're metabolizing it at um, a higher rate. Maybe they are needing a higher dosage. Um, maybe they need a lower dosage. And so especially having, if you have a bias that black people are just there to score the sweet, sweet pain meds and get that yeah. nice $10,000 emergency room bill, then you really... Yeah. <laughs> Most expensive pain meds on the street. I mean, yeah, you. but... but there there are there are misconceptions in the medical community about pain management and there are reasons to be wary of over medicating patients dependency is a real problem but there are instances of medical professionals simply choosing not to manage pain for the people that they just don't find believable and you have to ask why is that person not believable to them yeah i think that's totally true that's totally true. And so with so many things that we found in this COVID, um, this pandemic, inequalities are laid bare by the indiscriminate um, spread of the pandemic. So the fact that, that it doesn't discriminate means that we can, we can see where it spreads as a measure of the people that have the ability to avoid it and those who do not. And so when we talk about opening up, when we talk about a weak response, when we talk about COVID affecting the United States, there are subpopulations of the United States that are more devastated than others. And so the risks that we take on, we must know are not borne fully by us. If you're a white person advocating to open up, you are not going to bear the full proportionate risk of that decision. It will be disproportionately borne by the black community. Yeah, and I think that's a really good um, point. And also, just as a side note, since these things are all interconnected, we're aware by now that our government officials, especially our local officials, are really running the show on this a lot because they mm. don't have federal um, help or oversight to the degree that would unify our process. So in these in some in several areas with a high black population gerrymandering, um, mm. which Michael can go into a much better definition than I can, but which is basically a way to uh, sort of fix your district lines to neaten them up and make sure that the white people have a better say, but maybe you have a more technical definition is a real problem. That's as so, good as any. So, you know, really it does get back to when you say, you know, black people are disproportionately bearing the cost of this. They also are disproportionately um, denied a say even mm. in the people they can trust to protect them. Yeah. That's, 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 that's absolutely critical to this because you know, like our black communities are not given a seat at the table that decides their fate. And that's crazy. So now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. Michael, why do we do Tips for Good? We do Tips for Good because I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 more just, oh, just to no. be the man who walks 1,000 miles to fall down at your door. And also, 
because it makes the world a little bit of a better place. So, Jess, what's our tip for good this week? Our tip for good is really simple. Minimize exposure. It's really that simple, but Michael, maybe you can go into just a little bit more detail there. Right. Expose yourself to COVID and and others to you less often and for less time. And so balancing those two things is going to, in total, reduce, minimize your exposure. And minimizing your exposure will minimize the spread of the disease. And so that includes things like, you know, not only not going to the grocery store necessarily, but as many times, you know, in a week or a month, but if you're able, ordering groceries and minimizing the number of times you order groceries. So instead of maybe doing a big order or, you know, a few small orders, do one big order every once in a while. And yeah, to just, just minimize the amount of time and the number of times that there's an opportunity for the disease to spread. And please wear a mask, if not for yourself, because it's really not for you. For everyone else, especially the essential workers who have no choice but to be there. They're being exposed to, you know, maybe 500 people during their shift, whereas you might be exposed to, you know, 60 people in one 30-minute trip. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's totally true. Yeah. So So minimize your exposure by following the guidelines, wear a mask, and... Interact with people as little and for as short a time as possible in person. And that's Tips for Good. All right, so now it's time to talk about a few Supreme Court decisions. One is pretty big, and it relates to DREAMers, or DACA, the Deferred Action for Children Arrival, Child Arrivals? Childhood Arrivals. Childhood arrivals. I got so close. I should leave it to the professionals. No, no, no. (laughs) And the other pertains to gun rules. Take it away, Michael. (laughs) Please take uh, it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, let's talk about DACA first. Um, So, yeah, so on Thursday, the Supreme Court uh, rejected the Trump administration's attempt to dismantle the DACA program, um, which basically protected undocumented immigrants who were brought here as children, obviously, um, and, and you know, protected and continued to protect 650,000 people um, from being deported from the United States. So, so as, as of a reminder, um, the DACA program um, allows um, people who were brought here as children to remain in the United States and to work and, you know, it's one of those weird cases where for some weird reason, it seems to be on the conservative chopping block, but it's like, it's only 650,000 people. It's a very, it's a very small group. It's a, you know, a group of young people in the United States that have at that for many of them, this is the only country they've ever known. This is their home more than, you know, the country from which they emigrated. And it's, it's like an un, it's an, unambiguously good policy that um, the Obama administration put in place that for some reason the Trump uh, administration wanted to dismantle, even though Trump himself has had really mixed reviews. He's called them, you know, he's, he's referred to them in very glowing terms. And he's also said that there are quote, no angels. If you're wondering why there needs to be deferred action for childhood arrivals, 
there's a lot that goes into this but basically it's not that easy to become um, a documented immigrant or become a citizen it's not easy and i don't mean just that oh it should be easy for everyone i mean Mm -hmm. that these um departments that review applications can be stuck years behind so you could Mm -hmm. theoretically put an application in uh, in 2001 and i i remember hearing someone that i cared about talking about how their family's application had been put in 2001 and the year that the office which reviews those application was up to was 2000 or was 2000 i think and it was 2016 i believe when we talked about this so wow they're years and years behind and so you know if you come here at four years old what are you supposed to do you're here um and you don't have a real like legal status necessarily but Mm -hmm. you're still going to school you're still contributing to our society dreamers do not receive any sort of government funding for schooling they don't receive um, a lot of benefits or welfare benefits that we take for granted they pay Mm -hmm. taxes from which they cannot draw from the rewards so again this is on the chopping block from conservatives yeah for inexplicable reasons yeah no kidding and let's be clear, like, we don't think these people shouldn't get any benefits. Like, like they should, I, I feel like they, they are as much citizens of the United States as any one of us. Um, just not yeah, in legal contributors. status. Yeah. Yeah. Con- way more con- like, and, and, you know, the fact that they're contributors is a bonus. Like we don't require contributions from our other citizens. Like <laughs> there are plenty of people that contribute way less than, than the many dreamers that are. Looking at you, Ben Shapiro. (laughs) Yeah. If you just contribute an annoying voice, I guess anyone with a podcast can do that. (laughs) But anyway, so... Only Ben Shapiro. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so the Supreme Court decided in a 5-4 decision um, written by Justice Roberts um, that they would reject um, the administration's attempt to dismantle the program. So... So let's just break that down for a second. So currently there are five conservative justices on the Supreme Court and four liberal justices on the Supreme Court. So in this case, Justice Roberts, who's traditionally considered a conservative justice, um, switched sides and wrote the opinion. Um, And so that's pretty encouraging. And I think that was encouraging during the LGBTQ decision as well because we were really worried at least i know i was that we were going to have like we were going to see the supreme court go the direction of so many other um institutions in our government which is that all of the conservative participants would end up being or many of them would end up being just you know trump lackeys and kind of take their direction from him but in this case um at least justice roberts did not and um I will say though, like this is for for this is unambiguously a good decision. We should celebrate this. We should be happy about this. But this was not a full throated defense of dreamers by any means. So so, just to do a little bit of background on you know the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court obviously receives cases. They review them. They hear oral arguments. Um, and then they make their determination based on a simple majority of the nine justices. 
But what ends up crafting the takeaways from that decision? What ends up crafting the way that lower courts and and lawyers and um, other institutions um, accept that decision and understand it is the opinion um, that the justices sign on to. So in this case, there was a 5-4 decision with four justices signing on to Robert's opinion and a fifth justice, Sonia Sotomayor, um, writing a concurring opinion. So she, she voted for, um, she voted with the majority to, to prevent the um, dismantling of the program, but she wrote a different opinion. Um, and so the law in this case would be the Roberts opinion, um, but you know people could borrow arguments from the Sotomayor opinion. But the reason I go into that background is because the Roberts opinion is not, you know, Trump, you can never touch these folks. Um, so he said, he said this, quote, the dispute before the court is not whether DHS, that's the Department of Homeland Security, may rescind DACA. All parties agree that it may. The dispute is instead primarily about the procedure the agency followed in doing so. We address only whether the Department of Homeland Security complied with the procedural requirement that it provide a reasoned explanation for its actions. Here, the agency failed to consider the conspicuous issues of whether to retain forbearance and what, if anything, to do about the hardship of DACA recipients. That dual failure raises doubts about whether the agency appreciated the scope of its discretion or exercised that discretion in a reasonable manner. And so basically, what this opinion says is that, you know, we are siding with the Dreamers, but on procedural grounds. The justification that the Department of Homeland Security su uh, supplied um, for the changes to the program was insufficient. And it seemed like they, um, because they made no provisions for the DACA recipients, they weren't properly considering the implications of their decision. Um, and so two things. First of all, I want to give the Perspectrum a pat on the back because this is something that we called out when we reviewed um, the Trump's like DACA push um, back in uh, maybe November or December. We called out specifically that the lack of justification that um, his administration provided might be a chink in the armor of, of that decision. And the second thing to call out is that when a justice writes an opinion purely on procedural grounds, decides a, a, a case purely on procedural grounds, they are often trying to confine the um, takeaway from that to the facts of the case. So basically, in this case, he's... Um, you know, basically offering for them to go and rescind the order or rescind the program in a different way and then potentially bring up another case and see how it turns out then. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't he, by doing that sort of an off offering them a how not to do it, you know, yeah, very much like uh, Mr. Incredible in the first um, Incredibles where he's just like, well, I, I'd like to tell you to go and fill out this form and take it down to this office. I can't. I'd also like to tell you that you need to do this thing and then this other thing. But I'm not allowed to tell you any of that. So yeah. I can't help you anything at all yeah. today. Only he was yeah. doing good things. And um, I don't think that's... I do not agree with um, trying to promote Trump's uh, agenda to 
push dreamers out of our yeah. country. Um, just want to yeah. just want to take a hard line on that. Not a big fan of Trump. <laughs> this is shocking news, but yeah, I think he's a real and, bad and I, guy. Yeah, and I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion that like this is you know Robert's dog whistling like hey bring us another case because especially because you know um, two other uh, liberal justices signed on to the opinion. Um, but it's definitely worrisome that there isn't a harder line to your point, especially when Sotomayor was able to make a concurring legal opinion, um, that a harder line should have been taken. But on the bright side, um, this definitely blindsided Trump, which was cool. (laughs) He's having a tough week. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he's gonna he's gonna try to fire the justices and, and his administration. Be like, sorry, you can't you can't do that. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I guess he figured they would just be like everyone else, and he would either like they would either fall in line or gain disfavor and be kicked out or something. But it's nice to know that one of our most one of our institutions that's that's designed to be the most stable is at least a little bit resistant. Um, to his push, especially with Gorsuch siding um, with the LGBTQ decision last week. That was really exciting. Now, I'm curious, where did Kavanaugh side on this? <laughs> I have feelings and expectations, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, um, you're not wrong. <laughs> wow, what a shocker. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Big shocker. Um, so, so I think what Trump may have learned from that process and I'm, I'm only slightly being tongue-in-cheek because it's pretty horrifying. But I think what he may have learned from that process is if I get the most, um, if, I, if I really push through the grossest human I can find, they will really owe their entire career to me in such mm-hmm. a way that I have, I mean, they, really, if Kavanaugh doesn't side with Trump, there's no one else in the world who likes him. I mean, yeah. And I don't, I, I, Seriously, I think that there is a little bit of that, that Trump was dogged in his support. Yeah, and at the very least, you know, if if two gross people meet in the woods, they probably have a lot in common. <laughs> Trump would never go into the woods. That's <laughs> so um, much work. Yeah, so the, so the DACA case is, you know, very exciting, but not the final word that we're probably going to hear on this. It's um, a respite. Yeah, and honestly, nor should it be, right? Like, it's a temporary fix by definition. We need a better, more permanent, um, less fickle solution for these people. They're operating under a significant amount of risk just being in the United States at this point. Um, but the other thing we wanted to talk about is that the Supreme Court refused to hear several gun rights cases um, challenging various restrictions to guns. Um, so, so what it means when a court, when the Supreme Court refuses to hear a case, is that they denied it sortiorari, uh, which is a Latin word that I butchered the pronunciation of, I'm sure. Um, but it only takes four justices to hear a case, and so what this means is that a fairly large majority of the justices decided that they didn't want to weigh in on the ongoing gun debate, and they didn't want to try to, um, you know challenge restrictions uh, to guns in the United States. Um, and so there were, there were a bunch of cases before the court um, 
testing various levels of gun restrictions from, you know, whether guns can be carried in public nationwide, um, which they can, they can be in 40 states, um, including things like a ban on assault weapons, bans on high-capacity magazines, um, and restrictions of certain handgun sales. So, so they had like the pick of the litter. Any 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 gun rights that they wanted to challenge, um, they they could have in this case, but they didn't. And that's that's pretty surprising because because this because getting these gun rights cases in front of a majority conservative court has been a really big part of the the plan for the gun rights for gun rights groups, right? Like you, you pack the court and then you get the court to say that the second amendment is an absolute right that is not limited by any restrictions at all. And then all of a sudden you have perfect, um, unlimited gun rights in the United States. And back in April, Kavanaugh, our favorite, our favorite guy basically asked, um, the gun rights groups to do this. Um, he said, Quote, the court should address that issue sometime soon, uh, gun restrictions, um, perhaps in one of the several Second Amendment cases with petitions for sortiorari pending before the court. Um, and so he was basically like, hey, guys, like, like, you know, the courts are pretty conservative. This is basically him tweeting, hey, guys, come and bring us some gun cases and we'll get we'll get them going. Um, it's ladies' night at the Supreme Court. Drinks yeah. are free. <laughs> yeah, bring your gun and your yeah, and your and your copy of the Constitution. We'll get it signed. Um, stamp your hand. Yeah. <laughs> so naturally, he and Clarence, Tom- Clarence Thomas both dissented from the decision not to hear these cases, um, and and in that dissent, they wrote. Quote, in several jurisdictions throughout the country, law-abiding citizens have been barred from exercising the fundamental right to bear arms because they cannot show that they have a, quote, justified, justifiable need or, quote, good reason for doing so. One would think that such an onerous burden on fundamental rights would warrant this court's review in an epic show of sarcasm from, from Clarence Thomas. <laughs> yeah, so, like, it's pretty cool that the Supreme Court decided not to hear these case. At least it, it seems cool. I, um, I worry that maybe they were hoping for an even better case to hear, um, but I kind of doubt it. I think that um, the Supreme Court has seen what unlimited gun rights look like in a lot of places, and um, I think they're trying to push the legislature to decide this popularly because ultimately it shouldn't be up to them it's just, you know, the, the record of the Constitution and the case law is too mixed um, for them to really decide, in my opinion, anyway. But I'm not a justice, I guess. I just know that Nathan is probably regretting that this is the topic to come up on his week off. <laughs> Nathan, if you're listening to this, <laughs> down with guns. <laughs> He's screaming at the computer when he's no, editing no. this. <laughs> I, I, you know, we've we've done an episode on on gun rights on this podcast. I think ultimately we align, but for the most part, like limiting assault rifles and high capacity magazines, things that like, okay, maybe they're plus five percent fun, but they're also plus ninety percent death. I think that's probably a bad trade off. <laughs> well, uh, I I think. It sounds Good. to me like a very um, an interesting tactic to sort of kick this down the road and 
like you said, I do think it sounds like the justices trying to sort of hope that there's legislature put in place that follows more in line with what the people want so that they don't have to figure out a ruling for this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, ultimately that's just not their job. Um, But we've got some interesting cases that are coming down the pipe. So one is uh, that will be decided in the near future by the Supreme court. Um, So one is on Trump's long running legal battle to try to shield his private financial records from Congress um, so that'll be really interesting. And then several cases involving the separation of church and state, which is going to be, uh, I can't wait to see, but I'm also very worried about considering we've got some of our conservative justices on the court. Um, and then the first re-examining of abortion rights, um, since Gorsuch and Kavanaugh joined the bench. So that's yeah, a that huge makes question. me nervous. Yeah, me too. Um, I, I guess I was, I'm not hopeful, but, but mildly, uh, heartened to hear that at least Gorsuch seems to be loyal to, I guess, his own, um, ideas of how you are supposed to interpret the law. Um, Mm. my hope is that that will be at least consistent and that maybe that will work in the favor of, um, abortion rights. But I am really nervous about that. And I think I remember when Trump first got elected and all of these more and more egregious abortion laws and states were enacted. And their only purpose was that someone would challenge it because, you know, Mm -hmm. things like the heartbeat law, you know, six weeks um, is the latest you can have an abortion, which is two weeks after a missed period. So... Mm. You work on how that would work. Um, and, and that's assuming that, you know, you have a, a regular period every 28 days. That you know. Yeah. I mean, that if, if we want to walk it through real quick, just to be clear, a lot of insurance companies don't cover abortions. I don't think any do. do I, I'm not that knowledgeable about mm. insurance coverage of abortions, but I do know that it can be a big out-of-pocket cost, which would be subsidized by some clinics like, oh, say, Planned Parenthood, except a lot of states have done what they could to shut them down or um, make make it so unfriendly that abortion uh, or clinics that offer abortion, which usually offer other services, can't stay open. So mm. these laws were first put in place to for this purpose, for a Supreme Court challenge, and it really... I remember hearing about that almost four years ago and being worried and I'm no less worried now. Yeah. I'm no less worried either. I think we don't have any good reason. I think, um, to conclude that Kavanaugh and Gorsuch wouldn't, um, side with a anti Roe v. Wade, um, law, but we'll see. I don't know. One can hope, but that brings us to like, I think the final point of this, this segment which is that who's in office and who gets to appoint the next justice to the Supreme Court is really, really freaking important. And that pretty much has to be Joe Biden or we are totally screwed because, uh, good Lord, Justice Ginsburg needs a break. She needs to retire. <laughs> She's exhausted. She's <laughs> all she can do to stay up there, um, the poor thing, even though she's still an awesome powerhouse and super dope. Here's to you, Ginsburg. Uh, but but also importantly is that 
this will add fuel to the conservative fire. So, you know, the fact that this showed that the Supreme Court is not packed with Trump devotees is a mixed political result. Because historically, the Republican Party has used getting uh, control of the Supreme Court as a huge motivating factor for their base. Um, And so realizing that that's in question and not, you know, that the ruling in the conservative direction is not a guarantee um, that could totally be used to leverage greater turnout, especially um, among the potential conservatives who, um, you know, maybe Biden wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe they would stay home. Maybe they're not huge fans of Trump. But then you bring out, you roll out this, uh, this clown car of key conservative issues like um, denying LGBTQ rights, stopping immigration, overturning Roe v. Wade, Second Amendment absolutism, and all of a sudden you're starting to drive a lot of um, turnout from from Republicans. And so, you know, these decisions are a battle that we should really celebrate winning, um, but the war comes in the 2020 general because getting to decide who the next person to ascend to the bench is, is absolutely critical. And we see that Trump is already trying to take advantage of this to benefit him politically. He quoted, uh, he, uh, he tweeted out after the Supreme court decision, quote, we need more justices or we will lose our second amendment, second amendment and everything else vote for Trump 2020. We need more justices or we will lose the right to tell people to stop carrying pregnancies through so that they have babies, which we will deny coverage to and make sure that they live in poverty and with insecure nutrition because we are the pro-life movement, baby. (laughs) That was the best summary I've ever heard of that. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah, it is. It is a interesting and by interesting, I mean, absolutely horrifying and disgusting sort of overt tactic of the Republicans to make it obvious that, you know, loyalists are the only true uh, patriots, I guess. And um, you see that played out in so many different issues we have today. And there, this is such an, a, a very weird reaction from the party that has, you know, a lot of, um, quite a lot of, People who are really um, attracted to, you know, talking about how the the founding fathers went up and like ripped liberty from the from the you know pants of Great Britain and just like really showed them, and yet they uh, view any dissent as you saying you don't deserve to be in this country. I mean, how many times do conservatives say, "Well, if you don't like it, get out. Um, mm-hmm. You get out. It's my country. Get out." No, really, get out. And so I think that we can see that happening. I think the next Supreme Court decisions, if it is something that Trump gets to decide, which I am terrified of, he will be more careful to go the route, I think, again, like Kavanaugh, where you have to be loyal to this person because they have sort of stuck their neck out for you so much that it's not just that they said you're a good person and I believe that you would do a credible job. It's I don't care who you are as long as you know which hand fed you. 
And now it's time for one of our favorite segments, Asshat of the Week. All right. Oh, this this might be the asshat of the year, actually. Yes, he's he's the worst. Um, I mean, a lot of asses have been in hats. Yes. But this one really, um, really takes the whole toboggan. Well, so that's a pretty good question. Is it is it an ass in a hat or is it a hat made out of an ass? <laughs> oh, oh, I mean, yeah, I guess the original meaning is that you've got your head so far up your ass, it's a hat. Mm, so a little of both then. <laughs> but I mean, of which ass? I mean, yeah, that's so true. So this anyway, guy, he's the man who so defines it. Yeah, the man who defines an ass hat. If you look in the dictionary, uh, you'll see his name is Harry Sanders. He is a supervisor for Lowndes County in Mississippi. And they were having a lively debate um, about the removal of a Confederate monument. And he had, so aside from the fact that these, that three white supervisors voted to keep the monument and the two black supervisors voted to remove the monument, um, he had some, some really, uh, you know, choice things to say. So he started off, um, you know, by making the classic argument that, you know, if, we don't have these monuments. We are going to forget about the history. He said, if we're not reminded about it, we're going to have a tendency to forget it. And the history is going to repeat itself. And if you think that sounds hopeful, you may be right. Yeah, I mean, we all know how we forget the King of England at the time of the Revolutionary War because we don't have any statues of him in the United States. God, what was that? What's his name? Mm. I don't even know. What was the Revolutionary War, Michael? I'm confused. I don't even know what it's about. Is it about sugar? Tea? Something like that. We don't have, you know, I mean, geez. We don't have any statues of the naval officers for the British Army for that. Yeah. And so, so beyond the just normal insanity of that argument, the normal just absolute silliness, this asshat, Harry Sanders, went on to say, quote, the only ones that are having problems, guess who? The African-Americans. You know why? In my opinion, they were slaves. And because of that, they didn't have to go out and earn any money. They didn't have to do anything. Whoever owned them took care of them, fed them, clothed them, worked them. They became dependent, and that dependency is still there. The Democrats right here who depend on the black vote to get elected, they make them dependent on them. So there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot. Like the um, most racist statement in like 50 years. Well, <laughs> well, hey, one thing to take away is that he is admitting that they enslaved people. I mean, he says, in my opinion, they were slaves. <laughs> who's going to tell him? Who, who's going to explain it to him? Yeah, because, yeah. I mean, honestly, he's in Mississippi. He might have had a textbook that told him that they were, like, just as happy as the house elves are in Hogwarts. I mean, he seems to be thinking that. He was, like, he's basically describing that they just, like, they didn't have to. Do, he literally says they didn't have to do anything. Why? Because they didn't earn money? Why? Because you worked them to death and didn't pay them? This is crazy. It's it's going Back to that attitude. Um, so, so we talked about how one of the things that white um, slaveholders would 
tell themselves and, and have as a cultural belief is that black people are another um, species. They don't feel pain. And if we weren't taking care of them by making them work and do that good hard work all day, they just get into trouble. They really do need a firm hand to, to beat them and hurt them and harm them so that they can actually not just destroy each other and themselves. And it's awful and disgusting. And you think that that's very far removed from our culture, but then you hear someone like this who says, mm -hmm. he's essentially saying things were better for them because they were, they were just taken care of like they were prized um, farm animals. Well, no, they were treated worse than they treated their farm animals. Yeah. And again, you know, if you think that, well, this is some yokel in Mississippi and that's why he sounds like this, but no one else believes that, how many times have you heard people respond to the talking point about police brutality with saying, but what about black on black crime? Mm -hmm. It is that same cultural idea. Like it, it perverts our, our entire understanding of these issues. And it's, it's completely prevalent when we hear other people say, what about this, these people in authority mm -hmm. beating and harming and murdering black people and the counterpoint that is considered somewhat just ignorant and not absolutely terrifying is, but what about black on black crime? The implication there is if we weren't knocking them down, they just end up, you know, destroying them, each other. It's the kind of overt racism that we, that we think is gone, but that is manifested in covert racism all the time. Like, even if he didn't come out and say this, he, they're talking about trying to save a monument that, you know, literally depicts a Confederate soldier and refers to it as a noble cause. And this guy is talking about the fact that they be quote, they, the African-Americans, quote, became dependent because of slavery. And that's why they have a hard time assimilating. And maybe it's because of people like you. So, so anyway, congratulations to Harry Sanders for being our asshat of, of the, the week. week. All right, and now for our final segment, we are going to be talking about the police. Um, specifically, we will be talking about the some of the problematic history of the police and how that manifests in a dysfunctional police force today in many ways. And one very specific weakness of, this, of our U.S. police force that is also one of the most devastating. So Jess, why don't you talk to us a little bit about the history of the police? Yeah, it, you may have seen um, sort of kicked around social media uh, a lot lately that police, it's no wonder that they are extremely racist um, as an institution because they started as slave patrols. And that's true, sort of. This is a very complex history and people 
can and have spent hours talking about it. So I'm going to try in my amateur way to just break it down into some small pieces to give you an idea about sort of where the idea of policing in the United States came from. Basically, the way that the first sort of police departments were started really came a lot out of different needs. In the North, it was sort of a way for the, the, the richer class and um, sometimes the merchant class to have armed guard or well, to have guards, trained security guards for their belongings. Initially, if you had belongings or possessions that you were worried about being stolen, you hired your own private security. And then they uh, figured out that it would actually be cheaper if everybody is paying a tax for the police and they are really there to protect your property from burglaries. A lot of police work was focused on recovering stolen, stolen items. Um, there's actually kind of some anecdotes about how things were set up in such a way where you might have uh, police who were able to, in, in some areas, have sort of connections with thieves because people were so concerned about getting back as much as what was stolen as possible that they would offer reward. That was the only way you got your stuff back. You told the police officers, hey, if you go and find what was stolen, I'll give you 40% or 50% of it, kind of like how some law cases work where if we win, you get half of it. So there would sometimes be um, associations between police and um, thieves where the thief would find the or the police officer would find the thief and then get the stuff back and get a reward and give a little kickback to the thief and it's a nice tidy little business and then in the south yes you had a slave patrol the people in the south were absolutely terrified of a slave revolt um, they saw what happened in haiti they did not want a successful slave uprising and it was considered your duty as a white person, typically a man, to serve in the slave patrols, which would go around um, sort of like at, at sort of like really um, dangerous hall monitors, making sure that um, people who were enslaved weren't going to other properties that they weren't allowed to without a note or loitering in places where they weren't allowed to or um, just going and beating the hell out of black people to make sure that they remembered that they did not have power and quite frequently wealthy people the people who tended to have slaves working their property would pay poor white people to take their uh, service. It would be like a thing you were expected to do for a certain period of time, and they would hire out the poor white people to do it. And they just thought of that as the only way to keep black people in line. So it is true that in the United States, at least, um, police, police uh, forces kind of did not grow out of a desire to protect people, really. Um, it came out of a desire to protect property or d 
defend white people from retribution from those that they were oppressing. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. Like the, maybe this is too tenuous to draw, but the parallels between what, what you described and the things that we see today, they really seem everywhere. Like it was specifically wealthy um, white people who were hiring somewhat disadvantaged like people for the job of muscle and and in the south with the presumption of black guilt and you see that you see the fingerprints of that on our police system today like you have the obvious presumption of black guilt um you have a police force that is you know not made up of the most you know, we're not talking about like PhDs joining our local police force, right? We're talking about like people that join the police force often out of necessity for a similar reason that one might join the military. Um, maybe they have a high school diploma only and they can't, and it's like the best job that they can get, but they don't get paid particularly highly. They get asked a lot of. And so this job tends to fall to people that might be some of the least like people the least able to actually do it in a really effective way, at least to keep people safe. And so it's, it's strange to see these fingerprints on our police force today and how it's structured, how we think of it, how the police think of themselves and how they think of the community members that they interact with even, you know, a few hundred years later. Yes. And, a part of the police history that, you know, later on during sort of the labor movement in the U.S., as much as that mm. got a start, one of the main jobs of the police were to go in where uh, union workers were striking and beat them, shoot them, mm -hmm. you know, just just kill a few off so that everyone gets scared and goes back to work because the police pretty much did whatever the local wealthy, you know, we think of them as corporations, but, you know, they would kind of be like more like magnates back there, back then. And that was, it, again, like that's sort of these, they're sort of these, um, you know, flunkies for hire. Like they're, they're really there to just um, be this muscle behind protecting property and wealth and privilege mm. at these points. And, there, there, there's a claim that they go into protecting and serving, but whom do they protect and who do they serve? Yeah, there's a reason. There's a reason why we see, you know, a ton of police activity on the transition between neighborhoods, right? Like, you see, um, you don't, you don't see like a, a nice white neighborhood full of cops, and nor do you see a, a super dangerous um, neighborhood full of cops but you see police officers on the boundaries because they they partially serve to keep those two worlds separate and it, and more yes. and more that's to keep the worlds of of black people and white people separate it's that or sometimes the police are there um where i think it's it's sort of something that people are aware of in the mainstream sometimes the police are there to try to find out who is an undocumented immigrant and mm. try to collect them or even detain them so that ICE can get to them. Uh, 
those checkpoints that you may go through where they say we're just doing a safety checkpoint and they're asking to see your driver's license um mm. that's not constitutional yeah not constitutional you, sorry guys <laughs> yeah if if you've ever been through those um and you've been with Fourth someone Amendment who's irate about it yet <laughs> i don't have to show you my papers to go through town i mean that's really mm. what it is they're saying you're going through town show me your papers police are not supposed to pull you over or detain you or stop you in any way unless there is a good reason if they saw you mm. driving recklessly they could pull you over and immediately say i need to see your driver's license if your tail lights out if you look like you might be drunk things of that nature but they set up these checkpoints and you're not allowed to go forward and um i have you know as a white person i have challenged before i have said you know please explain to me why you are detaining me or stopping me am i free to go mm -hmm. and they don't like it they always um a lot of people they'll just glance at the driver's license and say have a nice day they always take my license away so that they can go and search it um to make sure mm -hmm. or like kind of run it more thoroughly so that's sort of it's it's a risky thing they get very antagonistic when you question their authority to demand your papers as you go across town mm -hmm. but yeah. again this exists now you've probably experienced it and so we have this we have this police force partly as a result of structural issues partly as a result of its history that ends up being dangerous and violent and you know to many people a threat and you know i think i think what we've seen a lot with some of the dismantle of the police arguments or dis defund the police discussion is that uh, you know more and more we're starting to recognize that that's not necessary right it's like it's not a, an essential part of the police force that they do violence against the people that they're meant to protect and it's not an essential part of the police force that they hurt some people and not others. And to, to illustrate this point a bit, I wanted to just share some, some facts about how our police force exists versus just other, some other developed nations. So specifically comparing countries in the G7 summit, which is the global seven. It's like the seven, seven of the most developed um, and leader, uh, like leading countries in the world. And so let's just start off with, just the people that die in police custody. So in the U.S., 12 people die in police custody per 100,000 arrests, which, you know, doesn't sound like that much, but that is twice the rate of death in police custody in Australia and six times the rate of death in police custody in the U.K. And one thing we want to be we clear of when we have these conversations is that they're hard to have, not only because these are tricky issues, but also because the data is not great. And you wonder, to some degree, why, whether that's intentional, right? Like, you can hide a lot of sins with bad data. Um, and so, so James Comey, the former director of the FBI, said back in, in 2015, when um, in, before the House Judiciary Committee, um, he said, quote, We can't have an informed discussion because we don't have the data. People have more data about who went to the movies last weekend. And I cannot tell you how many people were shot by police in the United States last month, last year, or anything about the, demog the demographics. And that's a very bad place to be. 
So that's I read that quote specifically to to mention that all of these things are estimates. You know, the all of these things this is not perfect data because it's obscured. And that's one of the major pushes that we need to solve. That's one of the major structural problems is you can't have accountability without data. Um and so just to just to go on um, in a bit of a bit more detail. So so back on the police custody, the deaths in custody. So the the Bureau of Justice Statistics um, found that there were over thirteen hundred deaths over ten months, um, in in twenty fifteen to twenty sixteen. That's a hundred and thirty deaths per month in the United States, um, in police custody. As compared to one death per month in the UK. The police also shoot more people in the United States. So in 2018, the police shot 31 people per 10 million people. That's compared to one person per 10, 10 million in, Ger- in Germany. So that's 30x the rate in Germany. That's th- compared to three people per 10 million in Australia, six people per 10 million in Sweden, and less than one person per 10 million in the UK. So in all of these cases, it's, you know, 10 times, 30 times the rate of shootings in these other countries. And you might say, well, you know, maybe that's because we do more arresting. Well, we arrest. um, So in 2018, three out of every hundred people were arrested. That statistic astounds me. 3% of the population of the United States arrested in one year year that's double the rate of australia and triple the rate of the uk but i wanted to point this out about the uk specifically so the uk has one third of the arrest rate but they also have one sixth of the cust- the death in custody rate and one thirtieth of the shooting rate so you can't say that more arrests lead to more in custody deaths lead to more shootings because it's possible to have a police force that has a third of the arrests, but a sixth of the shoot of the deaths and a 30th of the shootings. So we don't have to have an exceedingly violent police force, but we do. And we know that all of these numbers are dramatically skewed against black people. So in the United States, the police are 3.6 times more likely on a population-adjusted basis to use force against a black person than against a white person. That's crazy. Just being black makes you three, more than three and a half times as likely to be hurt by the police. That's a problem. Yes, and being so intersectionality of marginalized groups increases your risk. So I know... I, or at least I believe that Nathan um, has talked before on the podcast about how um, 50% of deaths from police brutality are disabled people. And we also know that um, trans folks t- experience higher rates of police r- harassment and brutality. That's what started Pride. It was um, mm-hmm. LGBTQ folks fighting back against police raids that were happening and, and police brutality against them all the time. So one thing, I mean, the data on that, I think 
is understated because mm-hmm. we already know that um, a lot of you know people who are targeted for sexual harassment, which if you are harassing someone because they are trans, that is a form of sexual harassment. Are less the Supreme Court to just it. said so. <laughs> yes, that's that's going to be my new thing to uh, throw in conservatives' face. So, according to a 2013 report by the Anti-Violence Project, trans people are 3.7 times more likely to experience police violence and seven times more likely to experience physical violence when interacting with police than cisgender victims and survivors. So, you take, mm. you know, that trans people are 3.7 times more likely to experience this and as you mentioned michael that black people are um was it 3.6 yeah 3.6 those are higher numbers when you consider the intersectionality of black trans individuals specifically black trans women are very frequently targeted by police um sex workers are targeted by police for you know harassment and um being you know collected and detained and before you think, well, sex work is illegal in the majority of the country, so they're just doing their jobs, you should note that um, there are different reports about what constitutes as justified, um, justifiable to arrest someone for sex work. And in some cases, finding a condom in the purse of a uh, sex worker or or of somebody who's been accused of a sex worker who is a black trans woman has been enough for them to charge them as sex worker. But if, even if you're saying that you believe everyone arrested is going to be treated fairly, Oh boy, do we have news for you? Um, trans people who are, uh, detained or well, who are arrested and then, um, housed, in any kind of facility because they are not being released or because they haven't had bail set or because they don't have money for bail are very likely to be housed with, um, or with people who are not of their gender, meaning that trans women are very frequently housed in, um, the men's facilities. And sometimes they have to be put in isolation to protect them from those men and sometimes they're not. We all know that isolation, by now there's a lot of research that suggests that isolation is really damaging to people. So if mm. that's the protective measure, it just is not going far enough. And furthermore, the abuse that trans people report experiencing from police, targeted for um, being called slurs, targeted um, with violence, um, targeted to be kind of placed in positions that make them feel um, in danger. And it, it's not something that I think it's discussed enough um, that we have, an under, we, have a, it, we have an idea in our country that if you get arrested, you're going to get a fair chance at explaining what happened, how you got there. And if your story's right, if you're, if you're truthful, um, they'll understand this was all just a misunderstanding. And that's just not the case for many black people, for many trans people, for many disabled people, for people who experience um, different layers of marginalized identity that might be intersecting. Yeah, I think, I think the, the fact is that as you drill deeper, 
these factors just get more and more compounded. You know, you start you start up at the top level and it's, you know, of the population, 3% of the people have been arrested. But then you drill down a level deeper and of the subpopulation of black people, a much higher percentage of them compared to the population of black people have been arrested. And you drill down further and it's black trans folks and it's a much higher percentage of them. And it's, you know, the inequalities go all the way down. And it's just, it's just crazy. And to your point, Jess, you know, we expect, we expect the police to be good. Like we expect that, you know, barring crazy circumstances, our police will be fair, will be just, and will treat us well. You know, you're innocent until proven guilty. So you are protected once you're in police custody. But and and the fact is that our laws are structured with that kind of assumption, and it's just not borne out in the data. One 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 law that astounds me that I think helps prove this point that we that in our laws governing police we have the implicit assumption that our police will be good. Is that in thirty five states, it is not illegal for a police officer or an arresting officer to have sex with a person that they have arrested, a person who is in their custody, if that sex is, if they think that is consensual. Talk about the assumption that someone will be an angel, that you can put them in an incredibly power unequal situation and then defer to them about the finding of consensuality with regard to an unequal power dynamic and sex. And you also could point out if you say, well, of course it's consensual. I don't really believe all these police are lying. Let me just remind you some of the rules about interacting with police. If you basically, if you touch a police officer, they can say that you've assaulted them. It is a serious offense. If you push them, if you, um, you know, slap them. So you could be theoretically in someone's custody and they might be doing some sort of sexual advance. And if you push them away, if you scratch them, any, any, any way that you might instinctively react to let them know beyond verbally, this is not consensual. Yeah. could then open you up to being charged with the serious crime of assault of a police officer. So to Michael's point, that is inherently such a, that is a power dynamic that inherently means that there can be no true consent. Mm-hmm. If you are in a position where you can't fight back out of fear of major repercussions that could damage you, that is not consent. Yes. Uh, exactly. We understand this. We understand this societally on a level, and if you think we don't, why do you think that societally we accept that pedophilia is wrong, that children cannot consent? It's because we understand on a societal level that just because someone is saying it's okay doesn't mean that it is. It, there are layers to it. There are layers about whether they could say no, whether it would even matter, whether they're under some sort of coercion. Mm -hmm. And to Michael's point, if you are in custody 
um, from a police officer arresting you, you really have no recourse to fight back. And if you do fight back, you face potential repercussions. So yeah. there, there absolutely self-defense is, no is literally illegal. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's another issue that comes up. There have been times, I mean, this is not necessarily with just sexual assault, but that's another issue that comes up with sexual assault and just with, you know, assault in general by police, where even if it's acknowledged that they assaulted you with no reason, you're not allowed to fight back. The moment you fight back, you're committing a crime. You're not allowed to run away because that's evading police. How mm -hmm. scary is it that there's no there? You could still face accountability and charges, even though the police officer in question will not likely. Yeah, with no with no underlying crime, right? Like you could be chased by police having done nothing wrong, and running away is a crime in and of itself. That seems outlandish, and. And about, you know, more about the power dynamics, like, you know, this is a person that has literal control over your freedom and your movement, you know? Like, like even if a person did give verbal consent, the power dynamic is such that it would be impossible to give true consent, right? Like, okay, you know, you cannot leave this place unless you verbally consent to to intercourse with me. That's like, that's, that's evil. That's sadistic. And it's the exact situation we're setting up. And it, and it goes back to this. We tend to, it's, it's weird in, in this country. We tend to hold police officers to a very low standard rather than to a high one. We tend to, to, to make excuses for improper police behavior. Oh, the job is hard. Yeah, it's hard. It's important. You know, the, you know, it's, you know, like anybody else, you know, if someone gives verbal consent, you can have sex with the person that you're around. Well, maybe you should be presumed guilty of rape if you have sex with someone over whom you have such a disproportionate power dynamic. Yeah. And you, um, you have, you can hear people who've discussed situations where they have had, um, police officers tell them if you perform a sexual favor upon me, um, then I will let you go, which is not consensual because there's an, a, an element of coercion to it, as you spoke to, Michael. But beyond that, there are also times where those people are not let go. And then, um, so, you know, if they try to talk about how they were, you know, coerced into um, sex, they are the ones who are accused of, well, was it consensual? okay, I said yes, but that's because they had this power over me and I just wanted to get away. I was terrified. Doesn't matter. We're done listening. That's all we're going to hear. So I've known people who have had police threaten to um, find drugs in their car unless they performed sexual favors on them. And the people that I knew who had that happen to them were 18 years old at the time. You know, through just this discussion, we've talked about some of the really problematic roots, problematic practices of the police, and coupled with like a societal pretense that our police are just great. And I think we need to really take a hard look and recognize that we need to be structuring our policing systems, structure our law and order for the worst case, not the best case. 
We need to be building a system that looks at our police as they are and builds accountability and expectations into the fabric and the framework. And I think, I think ultimately that's a big part of what defunding and dismantling ends up looking like. Yeah, I think that's really what defunding and dismantling police looks at is because, again, if you're supposed to, if you have the presupposition that the police are there to protect us, well, that's not working. Mm-hmm. Whatever the goals are of some police, it's not happening. And a lot of them will blame it on things like we have to not only know all aspects of the law, which would be very difficult for some. I mean, lawyers go to school for years just to kind of practice yeah. in one specialty. Um, it would be very difficult for police officers to know every law that they're meant to enforce. And we also expect them to show up, you know, if, if there's somebody who is threatening suicide, who do you call and who gets sent out? Typically police officers. Who, if there's somebody who, and, and if they have a weapon with them, then how do the police handle it? Yes, they have a weapon. They may be dangerous. But is that really the desired result? I mean, are they trained for that? If, if you have somebody who needs a wellness check, which is how some people have died, um, they, there was actually a trans man uh, named Tony McDade who was 38 years old from Tallahassee, who um, actually uh, had Asperger's. And um, that is uh, autism spectrum disorder. And that is something that might characterize different behaviors. So he was actually called for a wellness check. That's where the police are supposed to go by because someone is concerned about that person. Um, There's obviously, you know, to them, something indicating that maybe they're unwell and maybe they need help. And he died because they believed he was dangerous so you know if we talk about defunding the police and dismantling it if nothing else wouldn't that allow police to focus more on who can they protect and how can they protect by dispersing you know some of these like social work programs out and really having just a uniformed task force that maybe is very um, much associated with specific crime units like homicide or, you know, dangerous situations where someone needs help immediately and they're highly trained and specialized. All right. And to wrap up this episode, we will, as we always do, end on our highlights. So Jess, what was your highlight this week? Um, I guess my highlight of the week was that I did get to see my in-laws very briefly um, while we were wearing masks and staying sort of far apart from each other. But I got to kind of see them and chat with them for a little bit. And that was nice because that's, I think, the first people that I've seen in person that I don't live with that are not strangers at the grocery store in a very long time. Oh, that sounds great. Isn't it, isn't it crazy how, like, how amazing it feels just to interact with human beings? <laughs> I was like, this Pretty is amazing. so wild. Yeah. I can see yeah. your eyes and they're not lagging. <laughs> yeah. Anybody who thinks we aren't social animals has never lived through a pandemic. Um, 
That's great. I'm glad you got to see them. I'm always a, a fan of, of Raymond and Shirley. Um, <laughs> Suck up. <laughs> a shout out to the, to the C-loves. Um, yeah, for me, my highlight is, uh, so on Thursday will be my third wedding anniversary. Um, and on Saturday will be my ninth anniversary of, of being with my wife. So super duper exciting. We are going to get out into the wilderness and do some camping. Um, and it's just going to be wonderful to take uh, a weekend. Uh, well, we'll take a long weekend, um, and you know, get away for a bit and to celebrate being together. So congratulations. Thanks so much, Jess. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. <laughs>